Good morning. Thank you for that very warm welcome. It is, it is a privilege to be with you this morning. It's a privilege to look into God's Word and see how He speaks to us today in His church. And we're going to look at the church of Theatira, or Theatira, or Theatira. Uh, I've looked at it, and you could, depending on whether you're ancient Greek or modern Greek or just British, you could say it in all sorts of ways. So, however I say it, I reserve the right to change the way I say it as I go through. Right. Oh, I've got a picture. Um, okay, Theatira. I think you've seen this sort of map previous weeks. Uh, John, John was on this little island here, tiny little island here. Incidentally, you don't need to know this, but Kath and I were on this island down here just a few weeks ago. Crete, Crete, very nice. Anyway, that's not part of the sermon. So John here was <clears throat> on Patmos and uh, speaking to these churches up here, seven churches up here. And Theatira is probably one of the least significant of those churches, uh, certainly uh, as, a, as a city, not the most significant. So actually, that's you. Now, you're not going to get many slides, okay. In fact, you've had about half of them already, so, so enjoy it while you can. <laughs> Let me start by reading this, and I'm reading from uh, the ESV version, and I'm going to have to try and change the slide as I go through. So this is Revelation chapter 2, we're starting at verse 18. And Jesus is speaking prophetically to John. Jesus is addressing the church. And he says, To the angel of the church in Theatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen. Actually, this might be the smallest or one of the smallest cities addressed in Revelation, but that's the longest uh, letter to the seven churches. All right, so that's it for slides, okay? You've just got me now. (laughs) That's it. I changed my job uh, about three months ago, and I used to work in a team of about five, 6,000 people uh, for Jaguar Land Rover, helping design cars as an engineer. And about three months ago, I moved from that team to a team of about 12 of us, whose job is to support the five or 6,000 people. And that's a very difficult task to be in a small team looking to support five or 6,000 engineers. And sometimes we're not very good at it. And about a week ago, my new boss said to me, Tim, I'd like you to think how we can better do our job. How can we better serve these engineers? So I thought about it. And a couple of days later, I went back to him and I said, John, I would like us to send a questionnaire to a sample of these engineers. And I want to ask them, what do you think of our department? How well do you think we're doing? And my boss's eyes opened wide with fear. And you could see him thinking, it's all right for you. You've only just arrived. (laughs) Getting feedback can be a scary thing. Sometimes feedback can hurt. I remember going on a coaching course a few years ago. Maybe you've heard of this sort of thing. And the advice I was given was always give at least two or three times the amount of positive feedback compared with negative feedback. Be nice to people. Say good things about them before you tell them the really hard stuff. The feedback sandwich, I've heard it called. The trouble is, when you come back into the workplace and your boss has also been on the course, and then he gives you some feedback, and you think, yeah, yeah, all right, you're saying the nice stuff. Yeah, I know you're saying the nice. Come on, just give me the bad stuff. Becomes a bit of a game, really. But I don't think Jesus had been on that sort of course. Jesus just speaks the truth. And he doesn't dress it up in a sandwich of niceness. The Son of God does a lot better than saying a few nice things before he gives feedback. Towards the end of Revelation, chapters 19 and 20, and you might like to turn to chapter 19, verse 6. I'll read it in a minute. But towards the end of Revelation, in those few chapters, it talks quite a lot about the bride of Christ. Christ loves his bride, the church. We are the bride of, church, of, of Christ. He loves the bride so much, it says in Ephesians 5, he gave his life for his bride. He gave his life for his bride. 
And in Revelation 19, it says, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God gives the church the fine robes for that perfect wedding day, but the church must put them on. He makes us holy so we can do our righteous deeds. So back in Revelation 2 that we're looking at, these seven churches, Jesus isn't just giving feedback to a sloppy worker. Jesus is making his bride right for that happy day. And he speaks the truth to us. He gave himself for you and me. It says in Ephesians 5 that he might sanctify us, having cleansed us, so that we might be without even a little spot or a tiny wrinkle or any such thing, that the church, the bride of Christ, might be holy and without blemish on that day. And everyone who has this hope for that wedding day purifies himself, just as Jesus is pure. If you know you're going to be wedded to Christ on that day, you purify yourself. You get yourself ready for that day. Put the robes on. So we haven't just been given a few words of positive feedback. We have been undergirded. He puts us on solid ground. He is that solid ground. He gave himself. He has done it. And we can stand on that solid ground on what Jesus has done and we can listen to his truth, what he says to the church. This is just what we need, not fluffy feedback. We need God's feedback, God's correction. He is the only one who can offer true correction with perfect justice and fairness. He has eyes like a flame of fire, penetrating, that see the truth clearly. He has feet of burnished bronze, true, solid, everlasting, not fragile and brittle. He knows the way. His strong feet point the way of truth. So let's listen. Let us listen in absolute security to the truth that Jesus might say to the church here today. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. What a good church! 
They have the internal things of the heart, love and faith. And they have the external fruit of service and endurance, presumably in the face of difficulty. And they're getting better than they were at first. What a good church. He loves the church. He gave himself for the church. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for the church. And she calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This isn't finger-wagging feedback. This is a cry from God's heart. This woman is spoiling the bride of Christ. Isn't it amazing? That God has given her time to repent. What a gracious, what a gentle God. Amen, Lord. So, this woman, Jezebel, Who was she? Well, she was definitely part of the church. She was part of the church. Because the church, it says, tolerated her. The church tolerated her. Nobody was saying, this is wrong. And our society tells us, we must tolerate others' behavior. They might say to us, whatever Christians believe... They must be tolerant. And certainly, we should be very tolerant of those outside the church. After all, God has tolerated them and does tolerate them. But Jesus says, we are wrong to tolerate things that blemish his bride. And at Theatira, this Jezebel was in the church. So who was she? Who was she? Well, most people think that Jezebel wasn't her real name. Jezebel, you might remember, was renowned for being a terrible woman in the Old Testament. Uh, Absolutely infamous Jezebel. Even today, people might uh, mention her name. So... If this woman in the New Testament was called, really called, christened Jezebel, that would be a bit strange. That would be a little bit like having a little boy today and calling Adolf, wouldn't it? Um, And I do hope there's nobody here who has. (laughs) So this Jezebel in the Old Testament, who was she? Well, she was the wife of Ahab. Ahab, the king of Israel, he was a useless leader of God's people. He didn't keep his eyes on God. He didn't follow the truth. That was his job. But he neglected the truth 
And as a result, because he wasn't aligned with God's truth, he had no authority. And the people went and did as they wished. Instead, Ahab went running after Jezebel, uh, who came in from uh, Phoenicia, I think. Came in from outside of Israel. And she brought with her lots of priests of Baal. And you might remember that incident on the mountain with Elijah and the priests of Baal dancing around and cutting themselves and calling on Baal to uh, light the fire on the altar. And instead, Elijah put his trust in God. He even made it difficult for himself and trusted in God and demonstrated the true God. The true God as opposed to the false gods, the idol of Baal that Jezebel was leading the people into. So she was leading the people into unfaithfulness. So how should we interpret this Jezebel in the church at Theatira? There was no mention, so far as I can see, in the Old Testament of Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, uh, being particularly sexually immoral. In fact, in Revelation, so around about chapter 17, we don't need to turn to it, but in fact, throughout the Bible, sexual immorality, adultery, is often used as a picture of unfaithfulness, of turning from God. It's a common biblical theme. The adulterous wife is a picture of people who have forgotten God. And that's not surprising because marriage, marriage between a man and a woman is a great picture of two different beings coming together like God and his people. Marriage is a wonderful picture of that. And so adultery is also a picture of when the people turn away from God. So because of that link, and because we see unfaithfulness linked with adultery throughout the Bible, and particularly in Revelation, I think we can see this Jezebel of Thyatira as being a picture of unfaithfulness, of waywardness, of turning from God and not being faithful. How, and I think that's a very valid way to look at who she is and what she is, what she represents. However, I don't think that is enough. And we should also think of this woman as committing real, literal sexual immorality. There's several reasons for that which we haven't got time to go into. But if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, we can talk about it. But there's more to it. There's more to it. There's this food sacrificed to idols. What does that mean? <clears throat> now, Theatira was a place of a booming economy. It was full of trade. And every trade had its trade guild. So the people who made purple cloth, like Lydia in Acts 16, Lydia was from Theatira, and she was a trader in purple cloth. These people perhaps belonged to a guild of purple cloth traders. There were other things that went on in Thyatira, making bronze artifacts. Interesting that it refers to Jesus' bronze feet. 
slave trading. And all of these trade guilds, they were a kind of network where you all got together, kind of like friends in business, maybe all the people working on fine linen in one guild, and they maybe helped each other in the business. They would have had banquets where they got together, and they would have built their contacts, building relationships. And you can think, well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're into that sort of thing, building relationships, getting close to people, helping them out. Yeah, that's good. And then each guild would have had a deity, an idol. And of course, the food at the banquet was sacrificed to that deity. And then there would be rituals of worship of that deity, where people bowed down to this God who isn't a God at all. And of course, well, that doesn't sound good, does it? I don't know much about the Masons, but it sounds a little bit like that to me. It's maybe not all bad, building contacts, supporting one another, But it is bad if you aren't a faithful worshipper of the true God. If taking part means you're not being faithful to Jesus. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. Again, we won't turn to it here and now. But in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about this very issue of food, meat, sacrifice to idols. And he says, well, it can be okay. Because, of course, idols are nothing. They're nothing. They're often bits of wood or whatever. But then he says, but it's not okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols if you harm a brother, if you commit some sin against a brother, if it means ultimately that you aren't a faithful follower of Jesus. And there was huge pressure in Thyatira to blend with the culture to work in the guild, to be part of it, so that your business succeeded. And then there's a compromise. Well, what does it make me look like? And although I don't think that we have people in Warwickshire meeting up for banquets and idol worship, we do have our own huge pressures to blend in with a culture for the sake of getting on in the world And we risk not being faithful to Christ. Where are those areas in your life where fitting in with the world means we aren't becoming that perfect, beautifully prepared bride of Christ? Where are they? Ah, the classic areas where God would have us look. I could mention a few. And having said what we've said, I perhaps ought to just start with this idea of sexual purity. You know that Me Too campaign? You've seen it in the news, Me Too. Where people have been abused, particularly sexually, by others. Now, it's just as true today as it was in the first century that there are people who treat others like objects to be lusted after, not as the precious, precious people that God has created. And that can even happen in churches. And Jesus tells us not to tolerate it. Don't be like Theatira. Name it. It is wrong wherever it happens. 
But another area where we're often feeling the pressure to compromise is in our money. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In my own experience, a good test for that is how well, how well I give. Do I give? There's other things we could talk about. The stuff, the stuff that we accumulate that makes us feel good. Wouldn't the world notice if Christians completely did not chase the latest stuff? Wouldn't people notice that? And there's so many other things that give us security. Maybe even our family. Maybe even our family. We can hang on to that for our security instead of coming to the Lord. Or our jobs or relationships of one sort or another. Maybe your boss asks you to turn a blind eye on something bad. And he's your boss. Maybe you invest in the sorts of things everybody invests in. Even though you know that you're supporting ugly businesses. A deep question in these matters is where do you find your security? And I've struggled to know how to probe this for you. I think you have to come before God yourselves and check yourselves out. For me, for me, the lack of security is very often in worrying. I need to fix it. And I don't rest in God. The prayers for church leaders earlier, I just really appreciate that. Sometimes you can think that it's your church, not the church of Christ. Where's your security? In your own abilities or in the Lord? And where that applies in your life, you need to think and pray. Our lives are full of grey areas. And I'm sure that those trade guilds in Theatira felt like a grey area. This Jezebel would have been persuading people to join the trade guilds. Oh, it's just a grey area. You can't just shun people and look down on them. You can't just turn your back on earning a living. You need to build relationships with people. You can't just stand aloof. People will think you're strange. People will think God's strange. Justifying our impurity is something we can spend a lifetime doing. But Jesus sees us with those fiery piercing eyes. Searching, it says. Searching mind and heart. Not because he wants to condemn us, but because he longs for that pure bride. And he isn't even quick to punish. Even this false teacher was given time. But be sure of this, the judgment does come to the unrepentant. To any Jezebel who gives false teaching, to any of her children 
who follow that teaching. A sick bed is appropriate punishment for someone who made the marriage bed impure. And those searching, fiery eyes of Jesus are only scary when we feel we're wanting to hide from the Lord, like Adam in the garden. Can you feel that challenge? Do you feel some strain? You can trust him with what really matters, with your soul. And the less important things that you thought were so important might be taken from you. But the one thing that matters is secure and will never be put to shame. Never be put to shame. This whole passage is about standing firm on the truth. It's all about truth. Those fiery eyes that see the truth, that search heart and mind. He knows the good and the bad. He knows what isn't truth. He sees the falseness. And finally, he tells us what? He tells us to hold fast to the conqueror. Hold fast to the truth we already know. That's what conquering looks like. Standing firm on the truth, not compromising for an easy life, not wandering off for our own security. And that is what we do with Jesus in those grey areas, walking with him. We purify ourselves. We do those righteous deeds because everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So, When it comes to the end, those last few verses, Jesus promises something to the victorious ones, those who conquer. And I think that is linked to truth too. He talks about the authority he gives. You see, it's not like Jesus has got his little list of of good things to give. And he says, ah, well, Ephesians, yeah, Ephesians there, they, got, they got the tree of life, didn't they? Yeah, and then Smyrna, oh, Smyrna, poor things. Uh, they won't be hurt by the second death. Okay, and then Pergamon. What should we give Pergamon? Uh, do you remember? We gave them manna. Manna and a little white stone. It, it's, it's not like that. He's not sort of thinking, are oh, the people who do well, what should we give them? No, it's linked. It's linked. If God gives us his truth and we obey his truth, then this brings authority, God's authority, into our lives. If the truth of God is reflected in your life day by day in those little gray areas when you're tempted to compromise, then that truth brings authority, God's authority into your life. It's not just a random little gift he got from under the Christmas tree. It's an outcome of trusting and obeying the Father. Ahab had no authority. He had no authority. But Jesus, he said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Jesus obeys his Father. He stands in the truth. So when the truth of God manifests in the life of Jesus, people say to him, look at that authority. Where did that come from? 
And as we, as you, hold fast to the truth as you walk with Jesus, especially in those gray areas, then something of God's authority is revealed. And it's not just that he gives a gift for some far future. When we're in heaven, I'll give them authority. It's not just that. I'm sure it is. But it is the reality of God working in your life here and now. Little Theatira, probably the least significant place. And Jesus says, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Little Theatira, little us, ordinary people living day-by-day lives. And Jesus says to you, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So as we close, how has God spoken to you through this strange little letter to the church of Theatira? Are you too tolerant of those things that are definitely wrong? Are you, where are you tempted to compromise? Do you need to repent? We can trust Jesus. He longs for his bride. We are in the safest of hands. Let's reflect on these challenges and encourage one another. Shall I just pray? Bow our heads. Let's bow our heads. And we come before you, Father, our our God. We thank you for the security that you have put underneath our feet of what Jesus has done. And we come to listen to your truth. And we pray, Father, for the sake of the bride, for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of that day, we pray that we might be able to respond to you from true hearts, that are not yet perfected, but are keen to purify ourselves and be with you. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't depend on us. You have done it. You have done it. But we want to walk with you. Help us, Lord, to walk with you today. Amen.